I feel the same way sometimes. Let's pray as we prepare to hear the word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the cries of children, not because we like it when they cry, but because we are grateful for the gift that they are to the fullness of your community and the peace that they fit in your family that you have invited us to be in by your grace. We pray, Lord, that as we gather here to worship, that your spirit that has prepared this place for us would now fill our hearts and our minds, that we might, in the hearing of your word, in the joining together with your people in praise, know you, that we might know the depth of your love for us, that we might know the ways that you are taking the broken pieces of our lives as individuals and as a community and putting them together into a beautiful mosaic that represents for us your image. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 42. It's important to have a little bit of context before we read this passage this morning. Um, So, uh, Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of the Lord, uh, that Jesus, after having died on the cross on Friday, emerges from the tomb alive and victorious over sin and death. We talked about how that is the beginning um, or one of, the, one of the definitive acts in God putting all of the pieces of the world back together as we have broken it apart by our sin uh, and by introducing death into the world. Um, so... This passage comes after Pentecost. For the next 50 days, we're going to celebrate the season of Easter, or not 50 days anymore now, 43 or so. Um, But we'll celebrate the season of Easter, and on Pentecost Sunday, we'll celebrate the arrival of the Holy Spirit indwelling the life of the church. So we're walking that narrative in terms of the church, but today we're reading a passage that comes just after Pentecost. So this passage that we're reading, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. The disciples have waited in uh, Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit has descended on them in a mighty way. Uh, they, spoke in, uh, they spoke in languages in which everyone could hear. There were tongues of fire that came and rested on their heads. And then Peter got up and preached one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. In fact, the verse before we'll start reading uh, today says that about 3,000 people were baptized after Peter preached. It was a pretty effective sermon. And we'll pick up in verse 42. They, those who had been baptized devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. You who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Here in Acts 2, we have one of only two pictures of the perfect church that we get in Scripture. The other one comes in Acts 4. Jesus preaches one sermon. We get this uh, picture of the church. Peter, uh, Peter preaches another sermon, and we get an, they get arrested, actually, and go to jail for a little bit. And then we get another picture, very similar to this one, of the church operating in exactly the manner that it's supposed to. The bad news is that it only lasts for two sermons. After that, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, two who pretend like they're participating in the fullness of the sharing, the beautiful sharing that's happening in the church, but they hold a little bit back, and it leads to their demise. Chris McAlilly's dad, Bill, likes to say, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. There's a recognition that our own sinfulness does lead to a certain kind of brokenness in community. Not long after he preached that to my family, we went on vacation to Atlanta. And in downtown Atlanta, there is a church that has a sign that says, The Perfect Church. And over it were boarded up windows because it had closed. I remember very vividly my mom saying, That's pretty fitting. The Perfect Church doesn't have any members at all. So today is not a lesson in how to church shop. It's not to give us a list of what we should look for in a church if we're trying to pick one out. What follows is not a list of criteria by which we might choose a church for ourselves and our family. What we're talking about today is an image of the community that by the power of the Holy Spirit we are to strive to become. We're not supposed to find it. You and I, as individuals, are not supposed to find some kind of perfect church. We, as a community, are called to become this sort of community. We are called to be pieced together by the Lord into something this beautiful. We've talked for the last several weeks about how our sin tears apart the fabric of the world. It rips us apart from one another. It rips us apart from God. It separates us from creation in a way that leads to death. And it breaks down even our own ability to will and to do that which is good, that which is right, and to avoid that which is evil. And last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about how Jesus' resurrection is our first sign that everything is being pieced back together. As he and Mary stand in that garden, things are converging in a way that's beautiful. And that reaches its climax right here in the church that we read about in the first part of Acts. Not a community that we're supposed to find, but a community that by the Holy Spirit, the Lord wants us to become. So we're going to look pretty closely at this text today. And it starts by saying that they devoted themselves to particular things. Now, in the church sometimes we talk about having devotionals. We talk about having a devotional life. And what we mean is that sometime during the day, at least a few times a week, we try to set aside a little bit of time to read, maybe something else, maybe scripture, and to pray. Time to Sometimes we think of it as a little seasoning that makes the rest of the day taste a little bit better. But the rest of the day then is the main course. 
or we talk about it as a way to get my day started correctly, or a way to finish the day well, that I might rest. But to be devoted, in the sense that the disciples and those who are following them are devoted, is to take time to recognize the one to whom your life is devoted. In other words, our time of devotion is not one 15 to 20 minute period sometime in the day that we set aside that we might think of God for a few minutes. But to be devoted as the early church was devoted is to offer everything that we have to the Lord. In the same way that athletes or artists who are devoted to their crafts pursue every way that they can excellence in what they do. We are to pursue the Lord in that way. Athletes have to be concerned not only with what they do on the field, but what they eat and how they practice and how they exercise, how they sleep. Every part of their life is directed towards excellence. This is what devotion looks like. Every moment, every dollar, every ounce of strength, every bit of compassion, goodness, and kindness, everything that you have, and everything that you are is devoted to the Lord. To be devoted to the Lord is also to say something else. And it's something that we reject very hard culturally. To be devoted to the Lord is to say, I am not my own. I am not my own. Paul asks the question this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your body and your spirit. Yield your bodies and all their members, as well as their souls and all their faculties, as instruments of righteousness to God. That's John Wesley. Devote and employ all you have and all you are entirely and unreservedly and forever to his glory. This is true of any relationship, by the way. If we are going to abide in relationships with one another, we are necessarily not our own. Love means that we are not our own. That another's needs and longings determine the days, our day-to-day life and the larger trajectory of our life's course. Think of it. As a child, you know that you are not your own. You are under the will of your parents. But as a child, what you don't recognize until you become an adult is that parents are not their own either. Their lives become reoriented around the lives of their children sports practices and school appointments and doctor's appointments and entertainment and safety and food, all of the ways that parents provide for their children, reorient their lives. And having kids, we are no longer our own. It's true also of marriage. We actually covenant to do this, to give up our lives and submit ourselves to one another in a way that does not any longer let me make my own decisions in isolation from anyone else. But these aren't only familial realities. Even employment is a statement that I'm not my own. When you work for someone, someone else gets to tell you where to be and what to do 
and determines how much your time and energy, your expertise and your skills are worth in dollars and in cents. Your time is not your own. But the question of devotion that emerges for us today is to what are we primarily devoted? Is it to our children or our parents, our spouse or our employer, some other idol that we create for ourselves? Or is it to the Lord? Do we recognize that we have been bought with a price and that we belong to the Lord? This is what devotion means, that we are not our own, and it's inherent even in our baptism. We speak about it mostly in positive language, that, that Christ has, in Christ we have died and been raised again, and we put all the emphasis on being raised again and the life that we find in Christ. We lose sight of the fact that our death in baptism comes with a cost. That in baptism we are called children of God, which means that we are subject to the Father's will, his provision and protection, his discipline. As God takes the pieces of the broken world and pieces them back together into a beautiful mosaic, we don't get to choose where we fit. We don't get to choose where we belong. God's artistry means that if we're going to be a part of the beauty of Jesus' saving work, that we have to be set back in relation to all of the broken pieces around us. And that's not always easy. You see, when we recognize that we're no longer our own, that we are the creative property of the artist who's putting us back together, we have to submit ourselves to where Christ places us, such that we might, in concert with the whole church, reflect his glory. That we might be, as a body, that which does the work of Christ in the world. Inhabiting this sort of space as a broken piece amongst lots of other broken pieces is the way that we experience the goodness and wholeness of salvation in a way that ne would never otherwise be available to us. But it doesn't come by us alone. It comes by us being devoted to the Lord to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of his resurrection. But to speak only of devotion can make it sound like it's simply what abides in our heart, what we want to seek after. But the, the apostles and the early church were devoted to very particular things that were a sign of their larger devotion to God. A few of these things we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. First, Luke tells us that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching that they were subjecting themselves to what the apostles had to offer to them about the character of God as it had been revealed in Jesus Christ through his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is available to us now primarily through Scripture and also through the teaching of the church. That's what we'll talk about next week as we look at the Gospel of John and his account of Doubting Thomas. In a couple of weeks from now, we'll look at Luke's account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread. This is another thing to which the early church devotes themselves, to the breaking of the bread, to the life around a table where they can experience the fullness of God's love and grace. And he also talks about other things that we're going to look more closely at today. He says they devoted themselves to fellowship. That is how Christ is revealed to them in the midst of community. 
Christ is present, Scripture teaches us, wherever two or more are gathered in his name. We know Christ when we enter into true and deep fellowship with one another. They devoted themselves also to the prayers. This is, by the way, for any of your friends who say you shouldn't read from written prayers, it says the prayers, not just prayers. So they likely had written prayers that they read together that they might even learn to pray faithfully in the language of truth. They devoted themselves to praying together. We're going to come back to that. And then it says that all came upon everyone because of many signders and wonders and signs. Signders, I don't know what that is. Wonders and signs were being done by the disciples, by the apostles. The power of the Spirit that was in Christ is now in the apostles in the life of the early church. And all who believed held everything in common. They sold their possessions and good and distributed it to anyone who had need. Now, it's important to say that this is not communism. This is not some government coming in and forcing folks into sharing what they have. This is willful obedience and generosity amongst those who are, who are baptized and seeking to follow Jesus. This is something that they are choosing to do as they have need out of generous hearts in response to the generosity that they have found in God. But it's also important to see here that there's no application process. There's no vetting process for these 3,000 folks who got baptized and entered the church and all of a sudden are sharing everything together. There's no way to ensure that those who are really needy and might expect too much of us don't get to come in. There's no way to make sure that the church won't demand more of us than we might have originally been willing to offer. And Luke doesn't tell us this here, but in Acts 4, just a couple chapters later, after one more sermon, he says that as they shared everything, there was not a single needy person among them, that everyone had what they needed, because whenever there was a need, they would sell what they had and share it together. They broke bread at home, and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. They were grateful for the food that they had, and they were willing to share it. Both of those things are important to this community. Glad and generous hearts. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we see here that all of the broken pieces we've identified are being put together in this early church. That their relationship down with creation that's symbolized in bread that Adam is going to make by the sweat of his brow no longer becomes a source of a requirement of backbreaking work, but a source of their unity, their wholeness, and a source of gladness for them and an opportunity for generosity. Even bread becomes a different symbol than it was under the curse. Rather than the thing for which they toil and were never satisfied by, it becomes the cement, the mortar that holds this mosaic together. Their relationship down looks different. And then their relationship horizontally looks different as well. In public, they're going to the temple for much of the time. We think of the early churches in constant tension with the Romans and with those in the temple with the high priests. But for at least a little while, the apostles were still going to the temple to learn and to pray and to worship 
and then they were returning home. And in the midst of all the wonders and signs that they were doing, they had the goodwill of all the people. This isn't just ideally the church contained in itself, but they're getting along with everybody outside the church. The persecution has not yet begun. And inwardly, they're sharing in fellowship and prayers. They're eating bread together, and they're sharing all things in common. This can only happen in relationships of deep trust, in relationships of compassion, in relationships that have been healed by the Lord Jesus. This is a picture of what it looks like for salvation to reign, for us to submit our lives to the Lord and abide in community together where all can be shared. It's to say I'm not my own. I'm devoted to the Lord. My time, my resources, my gifts, my attention is devoted to God above all else. And I can live this out only in community connected to one another. For the church is the body of Christ, the embodiment of God's love for us. We have to be careful that we don't just say, wasn't it nice that the early church lived that way? Wasn't it good that they could share so well and that they all got along and that the world loved them too, that everything just functioned so perfectly? Isn't that, that's a good story. We have to see the way that this sets before us as a congregation of the true church of Christ, a calling, an expectation that we learn to live differently. So as Luke writes in Acts, he redefines for us what fellowship might mean. When we talk about fellowship, we usually mean that thing that we do in the fellowship hall where usually there's some tasty food, often highly caloric, where we get to join together and eat and talk about whatever appeals to us. Sports, the weather, our gardens. That's what fellowship looks like, right? A little bit of coffee between church and a chance just to catch up with everybody else. When John Wesley was beginning the Methodist movement, some people accused him of robbing the Anglican church of fellowship. So he was starting small groups that were learning to love one another and disciple each other to be fully devoted to Christ. And those who weren't involved would say to him, you're, you're destroying the fellowship of the church. And in response to that, he said, that which never, I'm sorry, I don't know what's going, what am I doing, Stuart? Have I broken something? We'll see. <laughs> in response to this criticism, John Wesley says, that which never existed cannot be destroyed. And then he says, this fellowship of which you speak among Christians and your church, it wasn't true fellowship. Who was watching over these persons in love? Who was marking their growth in grace? Who advised and exhorted them from time to time? Who prayed with them and for them as they had need? This and this alone is Christian fellowship. What it looks like for us to be in fellowship with one another is not just to have lighthearted conversations that are generally friendly and make us feel good about ourselves. Real fellowship is to watch over one another in love, to encourage one another as they grow in disciples to say, I can see how you're maturing in the faith. I can see how your devotion to the Lord is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You're more kind, you're gentler, you're more patient, you're more gracious and compassionate. You're a peacemaker. 
These are things that you are learning, and I want to mark for you so I can encourage you to continue to grow. Sometimes it looks like exhortation. It looks like seeing a brother and sister who's wandering astray and saying, this is not where the Lord is calling you to go. This is not what you are called to be. You are called to be more faithful than this. And it looks like praying for people, which often we do a pretty good job of, and also praying with them. Sometimes we think only the preacher can pray with other church members, that it's when the preacher shows up that we can ask the blessing, and that it's when the preacher shows up in the hospital room that we can finally pray. But devotion to the Lord, fellowship in the life of the church, looks like us being able to pray with one another, to join together in prayer, even without the preacher present, to seek after God and conversation with God whenever we need it. John Wesley didn't just say this about others. He lived it as he submitted his life to others. Very early in his ministry, he went to Georgia, uh, and he went on a boat with three other folks, and they committed, there were a lot more than three other folks, but there were three other missionaries going with him. And they committed, they submitted themselves to one another with a covenant that they wrote. And it was pretty short. It went like this. We're fully convinced that it is impossible to promote the work of God among the heathens, that's not a word we use a whole lot, without being entirely united among ourselves. And we're convinced that such a union can't exist unless each of us gives up our single judgment to the judgment of the majority by the help of God. So we agree that none of us will undertake anything of importance without first proposing it to the other three. Secondly, that whenever our judgments differ, any one of us will give up our judgment to the, to the inclination of the others. And if there's a tie, after begging God's direction, we'll cast lots. What they meant was that they were not going to make any major decisions without consulting the three other people that they were traveling with. That they were not going to do anything that did not submit themselves to one another in faithfulness. This is a really strong, exceptional example of what it looks like for us to recognize that our lives are not our own. And we can learn something from this as we seek to be the sort of church we see in Acts. It means that as we're raising our kids, that where they go to school all the way through is not just a family decision, but maybe a church decision. It means that when we're deciding what we're going to be when we're 18 or when we're 40, what we're going to do for work, what we're going to major in in college, that these aren't things that are primarily individual decisions, but that we can seek together to discern these things in community. It means that budgetary decisions, significant ones, buying a house or a car, making significant changes to our houses, or maybe not only family matters, that maybe... Maybe these are things that we should discuss with our Christian brothers and sisters whom we trust. That those whom we marry, that our medical treatment, all of these things are deeply personal. They're not to be public for the business of the whole church, but they aren't our own either. And the more we can find ways to engage others in how we might be faithful in the course of these things, the more faithful we are able to be. Because we recognize that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. You might think this is easy for a preacher to say the 
The salary is already paid by the church to spend all of my life devoted to the life of the church. But there are also costs that come with this work. Costs of the reality that I submit myself to the will of the bishop who, Lord willing, is not going to call me somewhere else this year, but could any given year. There are ways that this happens for me as a pastor and ways that it happens for you as church members. Ways that we are called to devote ourselves to the Lord and to submit our will to his, that we might abide in the fullness of community where there is no need, where we're characterized by our generosity and our love. The question that we leave with today is, are you devoted to the Lord? Are you willing to give all that you have, all of your time and effort and energy and skills in service to the Lord and the love that he has called you to? Are you willing to discern what that looks like with some of your best Christian friends, oftentimes even those who are outside of your family, that you might be faithful in your day-to-day walk? Because the church has something to say about these major decisions that you're making, about the paths that you're choosing, and we need to do it together. It's not always easy, and it won't always be as perfect as it was for the early church, but this is who we're called to be. And anything else would qualify us as being lukewarm. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess that we think that this image of the church is likely not available to us. We've seen the pain that the church can sometimes cause in the life of others. We've seen the ways that the church has failed to reach out and support We see the ways that sometimes we bicker amongst ourselves and hold grudges in a way that keeps true communion from being a reality. We confess that sometimes we want to cling to our own will and our own way, that we think we know what's best for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to submit, what it means to submit primarily to you and secondarily to one another, that we might discern together what it looks like to be faithful that we might recognize that we might not see clearly on our own, but that together as the body of Christ, we might do your will in the world. We pray that you would do this for us and in us. We pray this together and we pray it for one another, that you might build up our fellowship, that we might devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread. Do this work in our midst. Amen.